of five children, I've had the great pleasure of watching them grow both physically, mentally, and spiritually. This has given me a chance to see firsthand how their advancements in each of these areas has influenced their behavior. So much so that one of my most repeated words of wisdom to them is, with great power comes great responsibility. Now I must admit, I'm not the author of this profound statement, but it came to me from a pop culture proverb called the Peter Parker Principle. That's right, Spider-Man. You see, once Spider-Man realizes his powers, it not only changes him, but influences the relationships around him. It's not until he gets into a fight at school with a much bigger kid named Flash Thompson that he realizes the capability of his newfound power. With one quick punch, he sends Flash flying down the high school hallway for all to see. Peter's wise Uncle Ben hears about this encounter and tries to intervene, reminding him, just because you can beat him up doesn't give you the right to. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. More simply put, if you have the ability to do something, make sure you're doing it for the good of others. This is the first time that Peter hears of this moral responsibility associated with power. This principle comes from scripture and is described in Luke 12:48. To whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him, to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. As for Paul's letter to the church, let's set the stage with some background information on the city of Corinth. According to Greek mythology, Corinth was originally founded by a sea nymph or mermaid named Ephra, who was the daughter of the Titan god Oceanus, otherwise known as the god of the oceans. Around 2000 BC, the town was believed to have been destroyed by an earthquake, where it was then refounded by a more powerful Greek god named Corinthos. He was a descendant of Helios, the god of the sun, who according to local Corinthian tradition, was also the son of Zeus. You see, Zeus was not only the god of the sky, but also the ruler and father of all gods and humans. This founding is symbolic of the power and influence that ruled over Corinth. Geographically, Corinth sat in the middle of a four-mile-wide isthmus that on one side separated the Aegean and Mediterranean seas, and on the other side, rival states Athens and Sparta. Corinth was a strategic gulf port, thriving commercial center, and was one of the wealthiest and most powerful Greek cities. This drew a lot of attention from the Roman Empire, who in response demonstrated their greater power by invading Corinth and burning it to the ground. It was later rebuilt and colonized under the Roman authority of Julius Caesar and quickly grew to become a very diverse city of approximately 90,000 people. To put this in context, the entire population of Corinth could fit in the University of Georgia football stadium. This represents how their large, diverse society of Greek, Roman, Jewish, and pagan people were living amongst each other in a very close quarters. Spiritually, each worldview had its own gods, whereby idol worship played a major role in everyday life. For the Romans, there was the imperial cult. This was the state religion in which an emperor or dynasty of emperors were worshipped as an idol, demigod, or deity. The Greeks had 12 Olympian gods who resided on Mount Olympus. We talked about Zeus, but others important to Corinth were Poseidon, the god of the sea, Aphrodite, the goddess associated with pleasure and passion, Hermes, the protector of humans, 
able to move quickly between the physical and the spiritual worlds, thanks to his winged sandals. And last but not least was Dionysus, the god of winemaking, fertility, and yes, insanity. This reminds me of the modern day YOLO, where no matter what you do, it's okay because you only live once. For others, there were social clubs based on religious, social, and financial means, lifestyles of gluttony and indulgence, mystery of religions that required the bathing in sacrificial blood, and magic that spanned all religions and was believed to guarantee the desired result. In the midst of all this chaos is the Church of Corinth. They are struggling over how to handle such idol worship, specifically food sacrifice to other gods. This is causing a division between the more powerful, knowledgeable members of the church and those with a weaker conscience who are still transforming in their faith or have recently converted. The space at which these worlds' views intersect is called the liminal space. The word liminal comes from the Latin root limen, which means threshold. The liminal space is the crossing over space where you've left something behind but still haven't fully reached your new destination. It's a transition space. In the case of Corinth, the weaker members of the church are at this threshold. Having left their idolatrous ways and for Christ, they still struggle with their past. Paul gets word of this division and responds to the leaders of the church that all of us possess knowledge. So don't be puffed up or prideful. He speaks this common knowledge in chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Perhaps a subtle reminder to the Jewish leaders of the Shema, Israel, which is an ancient Jewish prayer they recite every morning and evening. Shema literally means listen and do and begins in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. It is this knowledge commanded by the law of Moses that is being used by the leaders of the church to disregard concerns and continue to partake with food sacrificed to idols. For them, there is clearly only one God, so food sacrificed to any other God is of no concern. However, Paul issues a warning in verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The word right is translated in Greek to exousia, which means authority or power. It is especially used in terms of moral influence. The point Paul is trying to make to the Jewish leaders is that although their knowledge gives them the power and freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols, there are others in the church without this knowledge who are still tempted by other gods. As a result, they are being influenced by the church leaders and at risk of being defiled, stained, polluted, both literally and morally, which will only lead to their destruction. Paul reminds them in verse 12, you're not just sinning against your brother, but you're sinning against Christ. Therefore, if it makes your brother stumble, don't do it. In chapter nine, Paul proclaims his rights. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? To paraphrase, I have many rights. I can eat, drink, and even get married like other apostles and brothers. Don't just take my word for it. It's in the law of Moses. 
In the same way the ox shares in the grain, I also have a right to share in material things as a result of teaching you the gospel. So what does Paul do with these rights? He surrenders them and endures all things, rather than put an obstacle in the way of you receiving the gospel of Christ. He explains in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul could have easily used his position, power, and influence to overlook, disregard, or condemn those he was trying to save. But instead, following Christ's example, he does the opposite. Out of love, he sacrifices his rights and humbles himself to meet those lacking knowledge so they may hear and understand the gospel. Paul does this for only one reason, and that is to share in the blessing of those saved by Christ. In chapter 10, Paul issues a stern warning to the church and wants them to be aware of the judgment sinful behavior will invoke. They are no different than Israel in the wilderness, who despite having been chosen by God and a firsthand witness of his power, through plagues, Passover, parting of the seas, manna from heaven, and water from a stone, still lacked faith, grumbled, and succumbed to sexual immorality that eventually led to their mass destruction. Therefore, remember this in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with this temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, Paul says, flee from idolatry. He reminds them that when believers share in communion of the body and blood of Christ, they become one body. The same is true for idol sacrifices. Only their sacrifices are for demons. Paul explains in verses 20 through 22, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? The answer to Paul's question is no. Don't make the same mistake as Israel as you prepare for the promised land. Paul explains in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So how do we handle this? Paul answers in verse 1024, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the true knowledge known by God and the law of Christ as commanded. In Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In Leviticus 19.18, don't seek revenge or carry a grudge against any of your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am God. And Matthew 22.37-39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Throughout the history of Corinth, we've seen the effect of power and influence when given to other gods. In each example where power is sought and misused, sin follows. There is only one true source of power, and that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. It is only by his example of sacrificial love that we understand its application. This was true for the Israelites in the wilderness, the church of Corinth, and yes, even Peter Parker. So always remember, there is one God. Love your neighbor, and with great power comes great responsibility.